The reading for today's sermon comes from James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we come before you conflicted, having in one sense, both feet very much in this world and surrounded, therefore, by wisdom that comes very much from below. And yet, on the other hand, having been lifted up to your throne room to hear your voice, we seek a different kind of wisdom, a kind of wisdom that the world will call folly, but which is actually the power of the living God, you, our Heavenly Father, unto salvation for all who believe. So would you please give us that wisdom this morning? And as your servant, James, expounds that wisdom in this short section of his letter to us, please would you teach us to take it on board, that we may grow more like our Lord Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And I'd appreciate it very much if you have a Bible... If you could keep that passage open, we're actually going to be jumping around a little bit today for reasons that will appear, will be obvious in a moment or two, but um, we'll start certainly in James chapter 3. J. Gresham Machen was without doubt one of the most significant reformed Christian leaders of the 20th century. Let's have a quick show of hands. Who's heard of J. Gresham Machen? There we are. Born in 1881. He led the fight against liberal theology in the United States and really across the world in the 1920s and 1930s. He wrote a monumental book, quite a short book, it's very readable, an absolute bombshell uh, called Christianity and Liberalism in 1923. Uh, He was known for his personal leadership among his fellow ministers in the denomination where he served, at least began serving, the uh, PCUSA and the seminary. He began his teaching ministry at Princeton Theological Seminary. However, he eventually left both the denomination, the PCUSA, and founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It was actually originally called the Presbyterian Church of America, and then all the Presbyterian denominations get a bit tangled when they change their name to be called the same as each other. Um, The PCA actually came along a little later, as we now understand it. Um, And then he left his seminary uh, and founded uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, And uh, both of those institutions, he left for the same reason. He was forced out by the increasing theological liberalism in the uh, theological world in the early 20th century, against which he committed his life to fight. 
He was committed to the scriptures. He was committed to the atoning work of Christ. He was committed to the virgin birth of Christ. He was committed to the resurrection of the dead. And he would stand and he would fight for every single one of these crucial doctrines. He was a great man. He was a mentor to many other scholars. Countless pastors uh, were influenced by him. And over the years, of course, I mean, the, the, the pastors who were influenced by him and the scholars who were influenced by him, people like Jane, uh, John Murray, Ned Stonehouse, Cornelius Van Til, heard of him? Right. He has directly or indirectly shaped thousands of pulpits. His Christian children fill countless pews across the world, including here. We are the spiritual, if it's not an irreverent way of putting it, children the spiritual offspring of the movement which God in his grace used this astonishing man, J. Gresham Machen, to found or revitalize, perhaps better. But there's a problem. And this problem was highlighted most famously by John Frame, who in 100 years' time, as I've said before, will be known as one of the greatest Reformed theologians uh, of our era, and um, he's still alive, which is why he's not currently known as that. But mark my words, in 100 years' time, everybody will see John Frame is the real deal. John Frame wrote an article in 2012, which was called Machen's Warrior Children. Machen referring to J. Gresham Machen, the theologian and leader. And he explains, having been, quote, born in the controversy over liberal theology, which denied all those cardinal doctrines of the faith, Machen's warrior children, his spiritual offspring, have fighting in their DNA. It's part of our bloodstream, part of how we experience and embody and live out our faith. And as the decades have passed and the generations have come and gone, the fighting spirit has remained with one crucial difference. Again, I quote from John Frame, being in a church without liberals to fight, reformed Christians have turned on one another. And isn't that just the truth? Isn't that just the story of recent generations of the Reformed world? I can tell you it's the story of the Reformed Church in the UK. I know all too well that it is the story of the Reformed Church here. It is the story of Reformed churches everywhere because we are all Machen's warrior children. John Frame lists in this article 21 areas of conflict that have, if I say animated, that gives the wrong impression, torn apart portions of the Reformed Church over the last few decades. I'll go through a few of them. Deep breath. Eschatology, consumption of alcohol, divine incomprehensibility, apologetics, the Sabbath, charismatic gifts, theonomy, well, who'd have thought it, covenant theology, law and gospel, counselling. We've had controversies over counselling. Are you serious? Yes. The reading of the days of Genesis 1, the regulative principle of worship, preaching, theology and tradition, and John Piper's Christian hedonism have all been separate little crucibles in which Reformed Christians have boiled over in antagonism against each other. These are areas where you'd think like a charitable discussion would be a really good idea. I've had some really interesting discussions with people about John Piper's Christian hedonism when I first came across it. If you've not read Desiring God, I encourage you to read Desiring God. It's really interesting. You might not agree with all of it. I don't think I do, but it's really insightful. John Piper's a great guy. But sadly, Reformed Christians have turned these into bitter and rancorous disputes. This is just who we are. And it kind of reaches deep into us. We probably don't realize quite how much a part of our instincts 
this fighting spirit is. It's like the last creature on earth you want to ask for a dissertation on water is a goldfish. Because, hey, they know nothing else. They're not in a position to stand apart from this and look at it and try and understand what it is. It's just it's the air they breathe, so to speak. This is the air we breathe. Reformed Christians have this crippling tendency to fight among ourselves. It's like almost meta-theological. It stretches deeper into us than the doctrinal convictions which form our professions of faith and our creeds. There's something else in our DNA, deep within us. And James, in his letter today, and actually last week as well, and in the next few sermons on this letter, addresses this problem. In the kind of display of divine wisdom that we have come to expect from the living God, he's anticipated all of our needs. He knows what we need to hear. And right now, if there's a passage of scripture that we need to hear, perhaps more than any other, in terms of how we function as a a large national or international community as reformed Bible-believing Christians, this is probably it. From James chapter 3 verse 1 down to halfway through chapter 4. We already laid some of the groundwork. If you look back last week, we looked at, um, well not last week, the last time we looked at um, uh, James, we've had three sermons on the first 12 chapters, all about the dangers of the tongue, which of course is how these disputes are constituted, their arguments about how we speak. Think of verse 5, for example, second hand of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And so we all go around flicking lighted matchsticks around the tinder dry uh, forest of reformed Christianity. Or verse 9. We use our tongues to bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. If ever there was a prophetic word spoken against us, is that not it? Is that... I don't mean us necessarily like right here, right now, although, Lord forbid. I mean us as a broad community, the, the world from which we have come. In the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, um, James is going to get into the gritty detail. What causes quarrels? What causes fights? He'll get into that, and we'll do that, Lord willing, in a few weeks' time. But today we find a vital piece in the jigsaw puzzle, which is the, it's the issue that goes deeper than what we do. It goes into what we are. We had a couple of conversations over the last couple of weeks uh, flowing out of the, the discussion of the tongue into the heart and how it is from the heart that evil thoughts and all of our actions flow forth, Mark 7. And this is how James frames the problem of the heart that we have and the solution, in a sense, that he lays before us in these verses, verse 13 to 18. He urges us to pursue this one character trait, which, if we can somehow grasp it, will be the kryptonite against the Superman despots of the reformed argumentative spirit that we need to fight against. This is the thing that we need. And it is, verse 13, meekness. So I want to spend a bit of time today first... We're just going to summarize the text. I'll walk you through it quite quickly. Then I want to spend most of our time exploring what meekness is. We're just going to try and understand what it means. Because I suspect it's not a a virtue which we think about very much. And therefore it's one that could do with a little bit of um, padding out, shall we say. And then uh, in our last few minutes, we'll, we'll look through verses 14 to 18. 
quite briefly, we might have some time for discussion about this in forum after the service, but to look at what stands against meekness and what actually helps promote weakness. So with that in mind, let's just work our way through the text quite quickly, try and get the picture, the big picture in our mind. Verse 13. Uh, Let me read it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's wise? Where's the wise man? He's probably um, pointing the finger a little bit at a small group within the congregation who'd identified themselves as the up-and-coming go-getters. Who is wise, then, among you? Who is understanding? By his good conduct, verse 13, let him show his works, not his words, works, in the meekness of wisdom. The phrase meekness of wisdom is, it probably means something like meek wisdom. It's a curious little phrase. And since um, uh, meekness is what he's talking about in the rest of this passage, it's meek wisdom. Wisdom, you recall from chapter 1, is the practical faithfulness that we need to work our way through life. Wisdom is not really a matter of the mind. Um, It is a matter of the heart, but it's a matter of the heart lived out. Wisdom is the virtue you ascribe to somebody who shows the right path, who lives the right path, not who talks the right talk. You see that? And so what kind of wisdom do we need? What kind of disposition to every aspect of our lives do we need? Wisdom needs to stretch everywhere. There's not a portion of your life where you can afford to be a fool, where you can afford to be unwise. Wisdom is the all-pervasive disposition towards every situation you find yourself in. And what is the character of the wisdom that we need? The answer is meekness. Every situation, every conversation, every encounter, every issue that we disagree about if only we could handle it with meekness we'd have a chance and then uh, this meek wisdom is characterized first uh, negatively and positively and, and then positively in the next few verses verse 14 to 18 first describe well in verse 17 and 18 you get meek wisdom is a gift from above whereas firstly verses 15 uh, 14 15 16 uh, this other kind of wisdom alternative wisdom, which is still called wisdom, comes from below. Look at it. It's very intriguing. Um, We'll look at this in a a few minutes' time towards the end of the sermon. But verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is a kind of, let's say, practical approach to life, which is still called wisdom and might have some wise things about it, but it doesn't come from above. It comes from somewhere else altogether. It's interesting. In the last few years, there has been a rise in um, all kinds of... uh, I I don't want to demean it with this phrase, but um, self-help teaching, especially in online contexts. YouTube has exploded with like long-form discussions, two, three hours of psychologists and sociologists talking with each other and the manosphere. Who said the manosphere? Right? That, that, that's a form of wisdom from below. And it's mostly garbage. But then occasionally it says something, you think, actually, that's probably true. And so the fact that there's something that's probably right means that people swallow the whole hook, line, sinker and everything else. You see? There is a kind of wisdom in it. But it's the, wrong, it's the wisdom that comes from someplace else. And when it's wrong, it's wrong like a stopped clock is... Sorry, when it's right, it's right like a stopped clock is right twice a day by accident. But it's still... It's still got a kind of wisdom to it, and we need something else. In other words, what I'm going to be commending to you in the next few minutes is an approach to life which looks ridiculous. And there will be times in what I'm about to say where you think that is complete nonsense, Pastor Jeffrey. That would never work. 
And I challenge you, uh, yes, it looks like it wouldn't. It looks exactly like it wouldn't. Like, who'd have thought a crucified saviour would be king of the world? So let's just think a bit more then. Secondly, we're going to work on this idea of meekness. What is it? It's mentioned briefly in chapter 1. We alluded to it there, so I won't repeat everything I said there, but those of you who were around when we preached uh, through verses 19 to 21 of chapter 1 will recognize some of the things I'm going to expand on now. Who is the man in Scripture, apart from Jesus, who we'll come to in a second, who is the man who is identified preeminently as the man of meekness, the man of whom it could be said there's nobody meeker than him in all the earth. Who's the man? You shout out. Come tell me. Who's the man? Moses. Who said Moses? Very good. Somebody who's been reading the Bible. Moses. Numbers chapter 12. I warned you that you're going to get paper cuts, didn't I? I didn't quite say paper cuts. Skip with me. If you've got your Bibles, look at Numbers 12. I want to spend a couple of minutes here and show you the paradigm of meekness, because this critically helps us to understand what meekness is. Remember, this is the disposition we need all the time. Always. Meekness of wisdom. Numbers 12, the Israelites are in the wilderness, and it's not long before uh, they're complaining against their leader, Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. That's his sister and his brother, okay? Spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he'd married a Cushite woman. Actually, he hadn't married a Cushite woman. He'd married a Midianite woman. And you want to know what's actually going on here? Um, Firstly, there, well, verse 2, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? No, he's also spoken through us. So they're criticizing his, what they claim is, oh, you're setting yourself up as the only prophet, Moses. Huh. Yeah, he speaks through other people, you know. That's the criticism they're making in verse 2. In verse 1, this is probably a racist slur. Midianites were slightly darker skinned than Israelites. Cushites, even more dark skinned. But to a racist, light-skinned person, everyone's like dark. So they described his Midianite wife, Zipporah, as Cushite. Not because there's anything wrong with being Cushite, but because Cushite had the kind of skin that people from South Sudan have today. Very dark. This is the, so just picture yourself. Moses, right? Possible racist slur against his wife. If it's not that, then it's certainly some kind of criticism that you married a foreigner... Yes, you know, I married a foreigner, actually. Um, so did I. <laughs> um, and you set yourself up as the leader. Like, do you detect in the early chapters of Exodus that Moses really wants to lead this people out of Egypt? <laughs> like, give me any other job in the world, Lord. Let me play the piano. Let me be on the door. Let me do anything but lead. But they criticize him for it. And you see what happens. Verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And the question is, right, how's his meekness going to be displayed? In a context where he's been criticized publicly, unjustly, by people who know him, people who love him, people for whom he's really laid down his life. What's he going to say? And the answer is, nothing at all. Meekness. I've just been slandered. Just been unjustly criticized. Yeah. They don't like my wife because she's foreign. Well, I like her. They think I set myself up here. They're misrepresenting me. They're lying about me. Aaron is lying about me. And he says nothing at all. Nothing at all. Except that when the Lord intervenes and strikes Miriam with uh, leprosy, he prays for her to be healed. Pray for those who persecute you. 
love your enemies. You see? Meekness. Meekness, in other words, is the commitment not to defend yourself by speaking out when you are unjustly attacked, slandered, libeled, criticized, but rather to remain silent and await the Lord's judgment, the Lord's verdict. It is a critical principle. It's why James, it's why he's talking about meekness in a chapter where he's just talked about not using the tongue, not using the tongue, not using the tongue, and then meekness of wisdom is show his works, good conduct, not what you say. What's the meek man say? Probably nothing. What does he do? Yeah, what does he do? That's the thing, you see? It is a vital principle. And see, we can help here. So we can help to incentivize meekness by not always leaping to the conclusion that somebody who doesn't defend himself must be admitting guilt. Yeah? Can you think of somebody else who didn't defend himself and was not thereby admitting his guilt? See, it's just... But yet our instinct is to say, well, you know, you took a pop at me, I'm going to take a pop at you. You slandered my reputation. Well, I'm going to, I've got to come back and I've got to answer. I've got to respond. I've got to reply. Now, there is a time when you've got to reply. You know, if you're in a, in a legitimate courtroom, of course you should defend yourself. Hardly the situation Jesus was in, is it? There are many, many more situations in our broken and messed up world where the meek thing to do is to remain silent. Because how many of us find ourselves slandered in a place where anybody's going to actually hear reason. Anybody's going to hear wisdom. Anybody's going to hear the truth. So if there's any fools around, you don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Meekness will remain, like Moses did, quiet. It's why in the book of Proverbs, meekness is contrasted with folly. It's really interesting. You can, you can understand Christian virtues in the book of Proverbs by looking at how they're all con- Different virtues are contrasted with folly. And you look, for example, Proverbs 12, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Insult me? Oh, well. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Fascinating. Conceals knowledge. He actually knows something. Something true, something good, something wise. He just doesn't say it. Fools give full vent to their spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. It takes effort. See, hold it back. We'll look at that in a moment or two. A wise man ponders how to answer. Because a wise man is a meek man, and a meek man isn't just going to say the first thing that pops into his head. Even, even when he's been unjustly slandered like Moses was. It's why um, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, come with me to Matthew 5 if you're flicking through the Bible give you some exercise for your little fingers. Matthew 5. Um, this is one of those problems where we, you, you get to a list in the Bible and our eyes slightly glaze over. We've got a list in James 3 and our eyes are going to be in danger of glazing over and we just skim over it and hardly pay attention. I mean, have you ever really thought about the details of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? Who is it precisely who inherits the earth? Psalm 2 language. Who is it who has the fruit of the king of kings with the iron scepter who smashes the nations to pieces like pottery because he's going to inherit the nations. The answer is, verse 5, blessed are the meek. (laughs) The people who don't defend themselves, the people who don't speak up when they're slandered, the people who remain quiet, the people who keep a lid on it, the people who wisely hold back what they could say, inherit the earth. See, the conventional assumption, isn't it, is that 
If you want something, you have to assert yourself to get it. That, that's right, isn't it? Management books, uh, career um, aspirations, job interviews. Yes? And it's wisdom. It is wisdom from below. That's what, and it's not that it's always sinful to commend yourself in a job interview. Yeah, you can see that. But can you see the danger? What happens is we just swallow hook, line, sinker, rod, fisherman, everything else. And, and we fail to grasp that the way that the kingdom operates is according to a different principle of wisdom altogether. It's the principle of meekness. It's seen in the character of Jesus. I mean, I've already alluded to this, this famous passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel, but it really bears um, reflecting on again. Um, he answers um, the governor when the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He says, yes. You've, he doesn't say yes. He says, you've said so. But then he is criticized because of what he's just said by the uh, leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, and he gave no answer. And Pilate can't believe it because Pilate only operates according to the wisdom of the world. Pass the soap. (laughs) See, that's how Pilate operates. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many things that they're saying against you? Aren't you bothered by this? Doesn't it it upset you, Jesus? Why, Why don't you answer? And he just sits there. Because why would you sully yourself by speaking the truth in a place of lies. You see, there is, a, there is a place to speak the truth, and it's a place where the truth will be heard. Don't waste your breath. Don't dignify this sham courtroom with truth that it doesn't deserve. And all the time, you, you know, if, if, you, if you, imp, imp, you grab all the... Joe Rogan, Manosphere, self-help literature, and you dump it in Matthew 27. And what's Jesus doing? You're missing out, Jesus. You're a bit of a beta male. And what's he doing? Only conquering the world. You see, and in an inspirational moment, which um, probably every preacher who's preached on meekness has come up with this sermon title, uh, meekness isn't weakness. I was quite pleased with that one. Meekness isn't weakness. And yet, it's, it's, meekness sure is counterintuitive, isn't it? There is a kind of strength of conviction, isn't there? What kind of a man does Jesus have to be? What kind of a man must he be if he can stand before the representative of the greatest nation on earth, Pontius Pilate, in front of all the chief priests who, from the age of 12, he has been able to tear to pieces in public debate. Right? And they're criticizing him for being the king of the Jews. And he doesn't do what... And all of you young men who've been to your debating societies have been treated like, this is your moment, guys, isn't it? And it's like, you, you, you take them to the cleaners. You'd take them to the cleaners. Can you imagine what Jesus would do? And it's not that your debating society is a bad idea, but can you see how there's a... There are aspects of the world where, you know what? Meekness. And in God's purposes, it's this that actually accomplishes victory. It's it's both a display of such internal strength. You know, he who 
holds his spirit is greater than he who takes a city. But it's not you being strong, standing on the deck of the Titanic as it goes down to oblivion. It's actually victory. It's actually conquest. Who's stronger? Samson. A uh, thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Shamgar, 600 Philistines with an ox goad. David, Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Othniel, Ehud, who's stronger? Or Jesus? As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. Who's the strong man? It's just, isn't it remarkable? How, can you see now how we, we need to find a way of reconfiguring the whole of our attitude to what men, men, makes you strong? Ladies as well. Um, ladies use their tongues no less than men do. What, what makes you a strong person? What will make you victorious? By what will you inherit the kingdom? Meekness. Jesus says so. It's worth trying to reflect for a little about how it was that Jesus was able to remain silent. Because, okay, so we say it's, he has this uh, divine insight into what will actually bring victory in God's purposes, which are his purposes. He's also a man of strength, internal character. So he's able to do this. He's able to hold his peace. But what is it that he has in mind What's fascinating, um, um, apologies again, flicking you around all over the Bible, but um, 1 Peter chapter 2, just look at this with me. Uh, And ask yourself the question, how was it that Jesus was able to remain silent and yet still remain confident of victory? Because he's he's actually in a debate here. He's in a courtroom. How, How can he keep his mouth shut? What's going through his head? 1 Peter 2, verse 23 When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That is, when he was unjustly criticized, he didn't respond in like fashion. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? This is the, if there's a a crucial central heart to what I want to say today, this is it. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Notice what's going on. Jesus doesn't say, um, what people think of me doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't say, here we are in a courtroom, lies are being told, justice be damned, it doesn't matter. He says, this courtroom be damned. He does not say, justice go to hell. Because he knows that justice is coming. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. This is how we will gain the clarity of mind and the wisdom and the strength to remain silent when we and those we love and Jesus whom we love are assaulted and attacked and maligned and slandered. It is by recognizing that there will come a day of reckoning. Jesus entrusted himself to another courtroom. One day, there'll be a judgment. And on that day, justice will be done. See, practically, this is fascinating because practically it gives you a criterion for when to remain silent. See, if you're in a place where people will, on the whole, respect the, uh, the wisdom of the truth, which will be shown visibly on the last day, then it's worth speaking. You're kind of anticipating the future judgment. But if, if you're 
uh, walking on the, along the road with mockers and sitting in the seat of scoffers, and that mockers and scoffers aren't going to hear the truth. Why would you speak? If you're, if you're in a context where it's an anticipation of that last day, a, a place where the truth, if it's heard, will be honoured, speak it. So you're in a job interview, and prospective employer wants to know, so can you do C++ coding? And you say, actually, yes, I can, and he'll honour that truth. Great. But what? there are so many other contexts in this world where nobody's remotely interested in the truth, and all the debates that happen are fruitless. I, we've, we've spoken a little bit before about social media, and I don't want to, this isn't a sermon about social media, but it just comes to my mind, because this is an obvious place where people speak. Like, can you, just, can you imagine Jesus going on Facebook? Like, you know, there's somebody wrong on the internet. Hold on, Peter. <laughs> like, why? But why not? You see, why not? And th- there's a very specific reason. And the reason is because it just looks like this isn't a place where the truth, even if it's spoken, will be honoured. So why, why speak the truth? Why speak? We're not going to spend our eternity tweeting. And of course, this requires faith. You see, what you have to do is, um, faith is being sure of what you hope for, which, and certain of what you don't see, and the reason you don't see it is because it hasn't yet happened, Hebrews 11. Right? So all those people looked ahead in Hebrews 11 to what lay before them. And so in order to be like Jesus, what you have to have is this unshakable faith in the promises of God that he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we're about to say the Nicene Creed. Where is it? We're going to say the Nicene Creed today. So look at this. Look in your orders of worship. I'll show you. Right? Where is it? Oh, yes. End of the second paragraph. Uh, Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So meekness, remaining silent, is your lived-out profession of faith in that proposition. You're going to all say that later. I hope, in our liturgy. Meekness is how you would live that out. Okay. We have, I think, two minutes left of ordinary time before we have to go into extra time. Overtime, do we call it overtime? Um, Let me say a brief word or two just to plant some seeds for our conversation in forum about what James is talking about in verses 14 to 18. Um, I'll be as quick as I can, and you'll follow if I speak fast, I'm sure. What undermines meekness is spelled out in verses 14 to 16. Look with me. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast or be false to the truth. Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, if you have jealousy, uh, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition will drive the kind of speech that foments division like nothing else on earth, won't it? And one wonders how many of those 21 areas of putatively theological conflict that Professor Frame observed were actually politics. That is church politics. And let me tell you, there is no politics that stinks like church politics. 
But there's something else going on here. The word translated jealousy is um, a really intriguing Greek word. The word is zealos, and it can mean jealousy in a negative sense, like Galatians 5.20, the works of the flesh, enmity, strife, zealos, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, factions. You know, it's that kind of backbiting, sniping, I want what he's got, jealousy. But zealos can also mean what it means if you kind of transmute it into English, zealous, zeal, passion, commitment. So it can be used positively. Um, uh, Titus told Paul about the Corinthians longing and mourning and zealous for him, and he rejoiced even more because their zealous had increased. That is their zeal, their passion to see him and to support him in his ministry. So zealous can be positive, can be negative, and sometimes it's like playing on both, like um, Paul remarks in Philippians 3 that he had zealous as a persecutor of the church. And I think that's the key here. This zeal, this passion, can so easily be misguided. It's, it was not, probably, out of hatred for the truth that all those quarrels began that Professor Frame identified. It wasn't, and it probably wasn't politics in all cases, in, in the case of every individual person. It was probably passion, commitment. I really care about the Sabbath really care about charismatic gifts or not charismatic gifts or whatever it is. But it's misguided zealous, misguided zeal, misguided passion, which prompts these quarrels. It is great to have a conversation. Let's have a conversation about the proper observance of the Sabbath. We had one in Bible study a few months back. Let's do that. Let's not get zealous about it. Can you see the problem? Um, one great old commentator on this text remarks in connection with the Corinthians, where Paul says, he remarks that you guys, it's like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. It's like, I follow Christ is just as culpable as I follow Cephas. The pious party, the zealous for Jesus party, are dividing the church no less effectively than the other three. Isn't that intriguing? And you think, my goodness, I could be passionate for the truth absolutely committed to it, and speaking the truth as well, and still have sinned because I lack meekness. We're out of time. I'm going to tell you over coffee in forum or by email if you want to get in touch what I think will increase our meekness. I just encourage you to look at verse 17. Notice the first item on the list. Truly remarkable. Everything else on that list in verse 17 makes sense. The first one is weird. First, pure. Huh. But that opens such a large can of worms. We'll leave that for another day. May the Lord God have mercy on us. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that our Lord Jesus Christ in the face of the most unjustified slanders, most heinous provocations, most vile insults, most unjust treatment, remained meek. Because that was the path you had chosen for him to conquer the world. Please, Heavenly Father, make us like him. For we pray in his name. Amen.